Powerbound for the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com. His name is Dave Cameron. And as he does every week, Dave Cameron, in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, endeavors to analyze all baseball. What he does is going to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week, Dave Cameron comments on a piece he wrote both reacting to and elaborating on an article written by MLB.com's Lyle Spencer. Spencer asked 18 major league executives and managers from 12 clubs uh, in Arizona during Cactus League play, asked them if they could start a team with three players, three franchise players, uh, as it were, uh, who they would choose. Some of the choices were quite logical, some of them surprising. Cameron responded to that. He discusses it at some length in what follows. What attributes does one look for in a franchise player, etc., etc.? He speaks to all that. Uh, that dovetails at some point with the positional power rankings, which, have, uh, which are appearing at the site this week for the next two weeks, I suppose, is how uh, we're going about that. Brief comments on that. And, for example, uh, how rare it either is or isn't for a team uh, to do what the Diamondbacks are doing, which is to enter the season with a pair of uh, conspicuously replacement-level players as their starters. We talk about that. Also, uh, during the course of this conversation, Dave Cameron provides a bit of insight. I ask him if uh, owners everywhere, if all 30 owners were clamoring to hire Dave Cameron as a GM for what teams he would prefer to work. Before he answered that question in earnest, uh, he provided this entirely accurate answer. I will say right now, I do think all 30 owners want Dave Cameron to run their franchise equally and that none of them want me to run their <laughs> franchise. Yes, so that currently exists. They all have an equal desire to put me in charge. Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. in Mexico City. Hmm, I'm not in Mexico City. No. What are you doing? What are you? Where are you? I'm at my house. Okay. Yeah. But that's also a beautiful place filled with beautiful people. Uh, no, just me today. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So wife is back at work. Her maternity leave ended today, so uh, we'll, we'll uh, starting tomorrow. I get kid duty, which will be interesting. That will be interesting. Wait. So what was what? Uh, now listen. It's not like me to cast aspersions. On anyone, including your wife's employer. What was how, how many? How much time was she given though? Uh, so the way they do it is a little strange. You're allowed to take up to 12 weeks, but you have to use your own kind of uh, paid leave. So we had to basically save a couple of years worth of vacation time in advance. Uh, so we basically just burned through all of her vacation. Okay. So, so they didn't pay her above and beyond for having a kid. They said, you know, take three months vacation. That's fine. We'll allow you to do that. You just don't have any when you get back. Hmm. I'm going to say that's not the ideal arrangement, but... It's not not the best. But I will say uh, her employer is where I got treated when I got leukemia, and they, uh, I think they probably ran up, I think the bills we received over those, I don't know, year or so where I got treated pretty regularly were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe two or three hundred grand, somewhere in there, and they sent us a total bill, total amount of bills that we had to pay was like, 1500 or two grand or something. So, you know, they maybe, and we maybe made out like a bandit, uh, in working for them. So, okay, yeah, so there you go. I was, uh, I think it was, um, this is Germany or something like that. I think the woman gets six months. Yeah, I think almost everywhere else in the world, uh, maternity leave is extremely long. Yeah. And then I, I think there's also a paternity leave as well. 
Uh, and you can actually like put them back to back if you want. So like the mother can take a year and then the father can take, or the mother could take like six months and the father can take, I don't know, two or three months or something like that. Are you, you just trying to get rid of me now? No, 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 of course not. You're like, how do I get Cameron off of Dave? Love having you around, Stop doing this podcast with me. Yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, listen, speaking of Mexico City, I will be uh, going to a baseball game tomorrow here, uh, which will include the following luminaries of of the pastime, Dave Cameron. Um, Yafet Amador. Amador? Yeah. Do you recognize that name? Only because you sent it to me earlier. He was a portly... He was a a large... um, he was a large guy signed out of uh, the Mexican League. He was, like, over 300 pounds. Yeah, I vaguely remember his body type. Yeah. Uh, I Miguel... think he now goes by the name Yasmani Tomas. Yeah. Miguel, Miguel Tejada? Uh, yeah, heard of him. You know him. Um, um, Armando Galarraga, owner of Not a Perfect Game. <laughs> well, he threw a perfect game. Right. He just got screwed out of one. Yeah, and uh, let's see, Manny Acosta. Willie Tavares. Willie so... Tavares is probably still fast. Yeah. <clears throat> Probably still fast. We'll see. So we get to see all those guys. Uh, that'll be very fun. Uh, let's discuss a thing. This might be related. I don't know if you did a thing for um, just a bit outside, uh, Fox Sports, just a bit outside. And I guess you well, you were sort of uh, taking a cue from one of these games that happened sometimes um, where a writer was polling what, front office sorts um, as to who they would select if they could have three franchise players. Is that right? Yeah, Lyle Spencer of MLB.com interviewed, uh, I think it was 18 people in Arizona. Uh, so all Cactus League front office types and managers, uh, and, and asked them, right, you pick three players, or give me a list of three players you'd want to build a franchise around. Uh, and, and they gave him some curious answers. Right, okay, so the results were, I mean, Mike, Mike Trout was on, uh, um, 15 of the 18 ballots. Right, and you right. were suggesting that um, that the, um, no no front office sort was allowed to vote for his own player. That's what Lyle said, is you can't pick your own. So I just assumed, by benefit of the doubt and not wanting to cast aspersions at anyone, that maybe mm. he talked to three Angels employees, which would explain someone justifying three players in baseball ahead of Mike Trout and your, and your players you'd want to build around. Uh, but, you know, it, there's some evidence in the context of the story that maybe that's not true. One uh, one unnamed official actually said he would prefer Adam Jones to Mike Trout, hmm. uh, which, you know, good for him, I guess. He would prefer Adam Jones. It, no, uh, let's give people the benefit of the doubt. Let's always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, what is the case you could make for Adam Jones over Mike Trout? Uh if we were playing basketball, maybe, maybe it would be a, Adam Jones might be better known in sport. He's slightly taller. I, I mean, there isn't one. Like, there isn't, let's be, yeah. But yeah there is, Adam Jones is just worse than Mike and even, Trout. I would think, like, even because, uh, of course, it, what, the one weakness, and it's, uh, it's been covered at some in some depth by um, Jeff Sullivan, I think, if, if no one else, uh, is the Mike Trout's uh, p- potential vulnerability to, to fastballs high in the zone. Yeah, last year that became an issue where he uh, started swinging and missing a lot up in the zone. Uh, he hadn't previously, and it's not entirely clear that he will continue to. But it is a possible weakness that maybe pitchers have begun to exploit. Of course, Trout is 22 years old, 23 years old. So most players his age have some weakness that eventually they figure out how to fix. Uh, so just because we've identified something that makes Trout, you know, a 9-win player instead of a 10-win player doesn't mean that he's... Uh, screwed and doomed for the future. Uh, but yes, there, Mike Trout is in, an imperfect player 
but as close to a perfect player as has existed in a very long time. Right. And as I think, as you point out in your, in your post, he's what, uh, he's been the best essentially through age 22 of anyone or anyone since Ted Williams. Yeah. Yeah, Ever. 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 Right. He's the only hitters, even just putting aside speed and defense and all the other things that Mike Trout does, the only hitters who've ever been this good through age 22 are Stan Musial and Ted Williams and Shoeless Joe Jackson, which you know, that's an okay, okay. Those, those are, yeah, literally yeah. the best hitters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, and what, and I think well, Babe Ruth would probably be on the list, except he was still pitching, probably. He was pitching at the time, right? Yeah. And obviously the game has changed dramatically and aging curves are different and there's some evidence to suggest that maybe Trout has already peaked. I mean, it's hard to imagine he could possibly even get better than this. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to just extrapolate, you know, a normal aging curve and be like, oh, if he's a 10 win player at 21, he'll be a 15 win player at age 27. It doesn't quite work that way. But, you know, to get back to the kind of the point of the column, if you were going to say, who do I want as my core franchise player going forward for the next 5 or 10 or 15 years, and there's a 22-year-old who's already had multiple 10-war seasons, you should take that guy. Right. Well, so, and that's one of the points, right, because I think that uh, Chris Bryant was selected by a couple of front office types. Yeah, three, Chris, I believe, yes. Right, and I think, what, Chris Bryant is only like six months younger than Mike Trout? Five months, yeah. It's not not a large age difference between the two. Right. You have to, and that, and that's the thing when you're anytime I suppose you're trying to assess, especially guys who've played in college, they are almost uniformly over 20 years old, and you know they're very good players who are actually you know they're succeeding at Double A AA or Triple A or in the case of Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, uh, they're actually succeeding in the major leagues at that same age. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things, and, you know, Harper not getting mentioned at all in the entire column, 18 people, not one single one mentioned Harper, uh, or at least didn't vote for him. They might have mentioned him as a guy who's maybe going to finish fourth or something, but he wasn't on any of the ballots, uh, is a good reminder of how quickly we can maybe move away from the shiny thing and and get distracted. I mean, you know, there were um, among the people listed were uh, current prospects who've never played in the major leagues, including Chris Bryant, who's, you know, generally considered the best prospect in baseball, but also Carlos Correa. Uh, and uh, Blake Swihart, uh mm-hmm. and Kyle Seeger, uh, or Corey Seeger, actually, not Kyle Seeger, Corey Seeger. So you have three non-number one prospects listed ahead of Bryce Harper, who realistically was the best prospect we've seen in, you know, uh, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years or something. And the, Bryce Harper wasn't just the best prospect at his time. He was the best right. prospect in a, you know, a long time. To take Blake Swihart over um, Bryce Harper, uh, requires some leaps of logic that are probably not sustained. Right, yeah, and uh, and that's a good point you make, because when Bryce Harper was the, was the top prospect, uh, uh, you know, obviously there are certain, because he, he and Mike Trout were prospects at the same time, and uh, I think it was, you know, acknowledged at the time, this is rare. So yeah. it's very good to be among the top prospects in baseball, but um, that, you know, there are different... Uh, um, well, you you have to make adjustments, I guess, just not even era to era, but year to year in terms of who you're considering in that in that way. Yeah, right. Just the number one prospect in one year is not the number one prospect in another year. And you know, Blake Swihart is and Carl, Carlos Correa and, and Corey Seager might all be top ten prospects now, but not, it might not be top ten prospects in some other you know list that also included Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. Right. Now, just a brief aside, is this a very different exercise than the one uh, in which I think you were asked to participate or or at least we we um, performed as a group a couple times when we, you know, if we were, we did sort of a, a uh, what was it, a player draft. We sort of did a franchise player draft, essentially. Yeah, that was, ESPN put that on a couple years ago, and uh, we participated by doing our own yeah. uh, and also being involved in theirs. Same kind of concept, I think, uh, 
it was mostly just a timely, you know, Lyle Spencer published the piece, and, and I found it interesting that no one mentioned Harper and that, you know, a few questionable people were mentioned. Uh, and so I thought it was a, a thing worth writing about more so than uh, a different experiment. I do think the franchise player draft uh, is maybe a little bit more in-depth because you go 30 players deep instead of three, and you have, uh, you know, kind of guys towards the end trying to decide, you know, do I build around a pitcher? What's the appropriate spot for Clayton Kershaw? And then once you start getting into the 20s, you even have the questions of, like, a guy like Miguel Cabrera, who has so much short-term value, does that weigh uh, more heavily in his favor, even though there's not a long ter- lot of long-term value, and how do you weigh maybe three or four or five outstanding years right now versus the hope of five or ten or fifteen outstanding years, but not beginning for a couple of years from now? Right, right, right. Okay, uh, so let's see. After Mike Trout, it looks like Clayton Kershaw was number two. Yeah, which, uh, you know, not surprising. Yeah. He's pretty good. Right. Difficult to argue with it, uh, certainly with what he has done. And I think that you bring up this point. Uh, it, it, it's sort of what maybe your choice not to select him, because you didn't select him. We'll get to yeah. that in a second. But <clears throat> it's just probably illustrative of the risk posed by any pitcher, right? Because, like, if you're going to pick a pitcher, obviously you'd pick Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. But just the, the danger that you would receive nothing from him at some point is pretty high. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the interesting questions that I know fantasy players can struggle with is kind of, you know, if you have your first round pick and you're picking your franchise player, do you go for upside or do you go for floor? And I think if you're going for upside, hard to beat Clayton Kershaw. He's very very good. He's one of the best players in baseball. He was probably the most valuable player in the National League last year. Um, So, you know, on upside, nothing wrong with taking Clayton Kershaw as a guy to build your foundation around. But the problem is that pitcher floor is basically on any given pitch they could be worth nothing, where position players obviously can blow out an ACL or, you know, have some kind of injury, but the the attrition rate is so much lower for position players that if you say, okay, if I can get a seven, six or seven win pitcher, or I can get a five and a half or six and a half win position player, and there's a 30% chance I'm going to lose that pitcher and a 5% chance I'm going to lose that hitter, you should take the more secure uh, position player, I think, you know, uh, in risking or balancing risk and reward, it's not worth the marginal gain between Kershaw and an Andrew McCutcheon or Giancarlo Stanton or Bryce Harper to get that slightly more effective season when both are healthy uh, because of the risk of the fact that, especially over multiple years, if Kershaw blows out his elbow and has 15 months of Tommy John surgery, you essentially uh, you know, get nothing for two years. Uh, and then you have some question of whether he comes back at full durability and whether he can throw 220, 230 innings again. Uh, you know, there's a, a long-term issue uh, relating to pitcher health after they've had the surgery and returned as well. Um, so I think, you know, the, the marginal gain from having a great pitcher like Kershaw is not worth the additional risk when you're talking about, you know, players who aren't that much less valuable, even at 100%. I know you, you were just uh, sort of ball, ballparking, ballparking, estimating those figures. You said uh, 30% chance of attrition for a pitcher, 5% for a player. Is that actually pretty close to what it is, I mean, historically? Well, so Jeff Zimmerman publishes kind of his disabled list odds every spring where he goes through and kind of looks at, uh, you know, how many times the guy was on the DL the last couple of years and his age and his velocity and a number of factors and kind of builds a model that says, here are the odds that this guy's going to land up on, land on the disabled list with some kind of injury. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be an elbow injury. It doesn't have to be Tommy John, but just, you know, whether you could stub his toe or, you know, get a bloody nose or whatever. Uh, and I think Kershaw was at 30% uh, for this year, for 2015. He had a, basically a one in three chance of landing on the table list. Uh, so, you know, some part of that would be a major injury, uh, you know, Tommy John or some kind of shoulder problem or, or you know, in Marcus Stroman's case, a torn ACL. You have some serious injury possibility that's probably, you know, a third of that or half of that. So maybe you're looking at like 10, 
12, 8, somewhere in there, some kind of percentage of uh, serious season-ending, you know, maybe even multiple season-ending injury that really derails his career. Position player, uh, you know, Zimmerman doesn't have a similar model, so I can't quote his numbers. But I think if you looked at, you know, kind of the top 30 hitters year over year, I would imagine you wouldn't find more than one or two who were uh, regularly blowing out their knees or, or missing full seasons for some kind of serious injury. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, number three among among their picks was, uh, what do you think? Oh, Buster Posey or Giancarlo Stanton. Those are good players. Yeah, nothing wrong with either <laughs> of those. I think with Posey, it's a little bit of an interesting question because so much of his value is tied up in catching. Not that he's not a good hitter. He's an excellent hitter. But he's mostly... A, one of the inner circle kind of best players in the game right now because he's such a great hitter for catcher, and this ties into the positional power rankings that we started today. Right. Uh, Mike Petriello kind of went through all the team's catchers, and there's a huge gap between the Giants and everybody else because Posey is so much better uh, as a hitter behind the plate than anyone else, but it doesn't seem entirely clear that Posey's not going to catch for more than another couple of years. I mean, there's been rumors of him moving third base after they lost Pablo Sandoval. Those didn't come through, but, you know, could still be a, a long-term possibility. I don't think Casey McGee is going to be blocking Buster Posey uh, if they decide that that's a way they want to go, or if they get tired of Brandon Belt, you know, he uh, either becomes too expensive or he struggles and they want to replace him at first base, they could move Posey there. If they decided that Belt want, they want to try him in the outfield again because all their outfielders seem to get hurt, they could move Posey to first base and stick Andrew Susak behind the plate and kind of keep Posey in the lineup a little more regularly and keep the wear and tear off his knees. So if you're you know, saying, okay, I think that Buster Posey is only going to be a catcher for another 18, 24 months, is he someone you'd rather have than a Giancarlo Stanton or a Bryce Harper? I don't know. Right. Okay, and so the, the players you selected, uh, you, you took Mike Trout because you regard it as obvious. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this, there's probably some merit to that. Uh, there is also, uh, of course, you, you select Andrew McCutcheon because he's basically like Mike Trout except um, just a little bit less impressive in every way. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Trout, I think, has to be on the list if you don't want to get mocked, essentially. Uh, McCutcheon, I think, is not so, so different in that if you pick three franchise players right now and you don't have Andrew McCutcheon, you're probably also doing something wrong in your analysis. He's really good. He's uh, basically the equal in terms of total season value of Clayton Kershaw just without all the risk of a, of a pitcher. I mean, he's a six, seven win player who's been that for three consecutive years at 28 years old with a skill set that ages really well and across-the-board skills. Um, you know, there's really nothing you can look at and be like, Andrew McCutcheon has this flaw, so therefore I'm concerned about his long-term future. Uh, you know, he's a little bit older than the Stanton and the Harper and those kind of guys, but at 28 years old, if you go through and kind of look at what guys who are this good at this age do, they generally average, you know, three to four war for another 10 years. So you're looking at, you know, maybe another 30, 35 war before McCutcheon finishes his career, I don't know that there's too many young guys in baseball that you'd look at and say, over the next 10 years, I'm confident I'm going to get 35 war from those guys. Right. And then, uh, and then, um, well, yeah, he's very good. You know, he's also, like, he, like, you know, he came up, I think he was probably noted, uh, you know, for that, for his athleticism, uh, but his control of the strike zone is also pretty fantastic. Yeah, I mean, he's basically just gotten good at everything. Yeah. He, he's a guy who, you know, doesn't swing at pitches out of the zone, he makes contact, he has for power, um, he steals bases. Like, yeah, Andrew McCutcheon is a, an all-around player who we just don't recognize as the best all-around player in baseball because he has the unfortunate uh, timing of playing at the same time as Mike Trout. Okay. Uh, and then finally for the third overall player, so you try out McCutcheon, then you have uh, basically a, a tie. You could just pick one from what, Stanton, Posey, um, 
Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper, right? And uh, or 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 Kershaw. You say if yeah. you, if you are going to take a picture, obviously it'd be clean Kershaw. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, of those, I would probably lean towards Stanton or Harper. Uh, I do think you know there's injury concerns with both of them. Uh, you know, and Stanton getting hit in the head at the end of last year probably not a uh, thing that's going to repeat itself on an annual basis. But we do have to have some concern about how he'll respond, and maybe it'll have some lasting effects. It wouldn't be the first time that a guy got beamed in the head with a baseball and, and didn't immediately recover to his prior uh, greatness. So there's some risk involved with all these guys. As we said, Posey could move positions. Harper could, you know, fail to develop into what we expect him to do. Based and doesn't on Harper his, also run into things a lot? Harper has, you know, had a reckless style of baseball that has injured him multiple times. You would think eventually he'll grow out of that, but he might not. So, right, with all four of these guys, I think there's risk. And you could say, you know, maybe I prefer Kershaw because... Uh, you, you know, his arm could blow out, but he's a kind of a known performance candidate, uh, where I'm not really worried about how good he's going to be as long as he doesn't blow out. Um, so I think any of those four guys, you can make a logical case for. I'd probably take Stanton or Harper, uh, but, you know, not with a strong conviction over Posey or Kershaw. But yeah. with a very strong conviction over Blake Swihart. Right, okay. Uh, here's the thing I wanted to ask you that is uh, similar uh, to to the thing we're discussing, uh, but perhaps uh, has even greater foundation, at least greater foundation partly in reality. Uh, here's the unreal part, is that you, Dave Cameron, uh, have the choice to become the uh, general manager of any club you want to, okay? That's the unreal part. But the real the real part is that you are, would be working with that particular club's current set of resources and current set – I mean resources, I guess, both like fin- their financial assets but also their assets in terms of players. Um, and I'm curious as to if you had that particular option – and this might also reveal a little bit in terms of your biases what, what you like about the game. But if you could – if you were given you know, some you – know, every owner said, well, we all want Dave Cameron equally. Uh, we'll all give him the job. Which one would you – which one would you be most willing to take? Which one do you think is the sort of – uh, roster and uh, you know organizational depth with which you'd like most to work. Well, I will think I will say right now I do think all 30 owners want Dave Cameron to run their franchise equally, and that none of them want me to run their <laughs> yes, franchise. Exactly. So that currently exists. They all have an equal desire to put me in charge. Yes. Uh, I think if I was going to be in a position where you know I had to take a job, I think you know I would probably want to avoid you know the Boston, New York, maybe even Los Angeles markets just because of the ridiculous scrutiny that goes with those kinds of um, organizations. I, you know, maybe for some people, they really enjoy that kind of culture and that kind of, um, you know, fishbowl. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for my personality, probably not the best fit. I'm not necessarily known for my PR media savvy ways. <laughs> I think uh, forcing me to sit in a room with 75 people barking questions at me might not be great for anyone. So I would probably avoid the largest market teams in the I think, you know, just I like to maybe not have a payroll of $20 million, so I don't think I'd want to run the A's or Rays or, uh, you know, one of these super small market teams either. So I think, you know, I'd probably head to the middle somewhere where you have enough money to spend uh, to get good players but not so much scrutiny on what you do that, you know, I want to beat my head against a wall. So I think, you know, St. Louis seems like a decent destination. Uh, maybe Washington. D.C. is a, you know, pretty large media market, but there's, you know, other things going on in that city besides baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe the Colorado Rockies. Uh, part of that is I like Denver a lot and wouldn't mind living there, but uh, I think one of those kinds of franchises, it's, you know, 100 to $125 million payroll, uh, maybe only three or four beat writers instead of 50. 
and, you know, not the expectation that you get fired if you lose 90 games once. Is there any suggestion that um, it's, it is actually harder for, I mean, there's obviously you can't do a comprehensive study of this, but if you take the same guy and put him in a job, yeah, like you're saying, like if you, you know, give him the Milwaukee job versus the Yankees job, um, you know, does 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 having that job in New York does that ham hamstring you? Hamstring you? Does it ham? Does it constrain you from making certain choices? I mean, obviously there was the instance in which uh, what was the what was the signing where Brian Cashman just said I didn't want to do that. That was Rafael Soriano, uh, right? Rafael Soriano at the press conference. <laughs> yeah. Rafael Soriano was like, I didn't want this guy. Yeah, right. And oh. well, and maybe you can't do maybe you can't do that. Like New Yorkers will probably accept the fact that like, yeah, I didn't want him, but here he is on the team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because no, they, they can't feel great if you're Rafael Soriano either. Well, he got $36 million, so that part felt, felt pretty good. Yeah, that part. Uh, you know, I think uh, there are definitely constraints that come on both sides of things, right? So, like, Billy Bean can trade his entire team every year if he wants to, and no one cares because only 10,000 people go to the game. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, he can trade Josh Donaldson and the uproar can last five days. But if the Yankees decided to trade Derek Jeter, they'd burn the stadium down, right? So, like, uh, there's constraints that come with a large market kind of uh, attachment where you have a deeply embedded fan base who's buying jerseys and who's, uh, you know, uh, are getting attached to the players and not necessarily just the laundry um, that I think, you know, is probably a, a little bit of a, an issue. I think we see Andrew Friedman coming into the Dodgers trading Matt Kemp, and there's a significant blowback uh, to what, what the Dodgers have done this winter, even though by most of our metrics, the Dodgers got a lot better this winter and are maybe, uh, you know, five, six games better than they were last year, uh, at least in terms of true talent. Uh, and, you know, yet it's still seen as a rebuilding because he traded away an overrated star player. Um, you know, I think in one of those cities, it would probably be frustrating for me to know that, like, getting rid of Matt Kemp is the right idea and I'm going to get killed for it. Is that really true? Are there, are there people writing that, that, that they've taken a step back because they got rid of Matt Kemp? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There really? was a, when, when he started making those moves, uh, it was categorized that the Rays, the Dodgers were entering a rebuilding phase and opening up the National League West to other teams because they were going to stop spending money like they previously had and they were focusing on younger talent. And then, you know, people were like, oh yeah, they got Jimmy Rollins and Howie Kendrick too, but those guys aren't nearly as good as Matt Kemp when, you know, Jimmy Rollins is probably almost as good as Matt Kemp and Howie Kendrick is demonstrably better. Right, and they're also they're more affordable as well. Yeah, which I mean it doesn't matter as much to the Dodgers. They they've got a two hundred fifty million dollar payroll, so affordability isn't necessarily the key here. But I mean, you know, even from our numbers, like his money Grandal uh, is roughly a two win catcher, and Matt Kemp is you know a two and a half or three win outfielder, depending on what you think his defense and right field is going to be. That's not a huge downgrade, especially because you know the Dodgers had outfield depth and they didn't have catching depth, so you factor in the positional difference, and we'd say okay, you know. From our numbers, and the ones who don't think Matt Kemp is one of the best players in baseball, and who think his money Grandal is an above-average hitting major league catcher, uh, you know, this isn't a bad trade to make. What, what a lot of people who aren't necessarily looking at Fangraphs numbers see is a guy who, uh, you know, won an MVP a couple of years ago, and was the Dodgers clearly their best player last year, their best hitter last year. Uh, and his money Grandal is a, you know, an injury-prone catcher who has a steroid suspension in his belt. Like, uh, uh, the perception of them is very different when the numbers say perhaps the performance level is not that different. Now, you mentioned the, the Rockies is on the team, and you mostly connected to it, it sort of qualifies by that. The criteria you set up of a sort of mid-level team that has some resources and also maybe does not have quite the sort of um, – uh, as, as challenging a, uh, a media market, so you wouldn't have to 
you know, probably uh, answer as many questions. Uh, but uh, you, you also mentioned, I mean, the Nationals, that's a, that's a pretty healthy franchise right now. The Rockies have not had a lot of success, and I don't know, I, I don't necessarily know um, that they necessarily have a lot of um, talent coming through the pipeline. I mean, they have some, they, you know, they clearly have some guys, uh, but they're not particularly well situated. And, and I'm curious as to if you were to consider that as a factor as well, if that would change your mind. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was just going to pick this, like, I get to take over a team right now, I probably wouldn't care too much about the talent level on the field because I think a lot of that is somewhat changeable. I mean, right, so if you take over a bad team and you have high draft picks and you scout really well and you have some confidence in your ability to find undervalued talent, you can change a team's talent base in a couple of years. So if you're given enough of a leash uh, kind of to, you know, do what uh, rebuilding teams can do, uh, I wouldn't be too terribly concerned with the current state of the talent level. Uh, I would say in Colorado, probably the other issue there is the ballpark and, and whether that's a solvable problem. And it presents a challenge that is, depending on your personality, maybe really fun to tackle and say, you know, we know that building a baseball team that plays in Colorado is different than building a baseball team that plays anywhere else. So you're not using the same formulas and you're not using the same tools to answer questions that any other front office in baseball has to use. Uh, I, I would find that maybe pretty interesting and kind of uh, a fun challenge to try and tackle is the, like how do you build a sustained winner in this ballpark and at altitude and uh, you know what kinds of players should we be acquiring and I, I feel like there's maybe uh, a different set of questions that would be intriguing rather than just kind of going after the types of players that the other 29 teams have identified as valuable. Okay, well in terms of uh, in terms of taking over a roster, um, this. Uh, Leads us to just. To, I just want to talk briefly about the positional power rankings. Would you want to take over a team like the Diamondbacks, and the like with the, the situation they have at catcher, which is essentially they possess zero major league talent there. You know, I think for, not not wanting to just bash the Diamondbacks too heavily because I will say like uh, this is probably something I'll write about either this week or next week. Mm-hmm. I feel like the Diamondbacks are setting themselves up uh, to be so easily mocked by the things they're doing that we can lose sight of the fact that baseball is still pretty random in the point where, like, the Diamondbacks front office being really dumb doesn't necessarily mean that the Diamondbacks are going to be a disaster on the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they clearly are a disaster at catcher. I do think this is a very easily fixed problem, though. Like, when you look at it and say, okay, they have Tuffy Ghostwitch and uh, Gerald Laird as their backstops, this really is embarrassing for a major league team to even consider breaking camp with those guys in 2015. But there are so many decent, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily high quality or high ceiling guys, but like, you know, catchable, kind of playable catch and throw guys or guys who can hit a little bit. Maybe Aaron Navarro, Wellington, Castillo types were obviously available in the trade market, but even beyond that, just, you know, any number of young guys. The Padres kind of for years have cycled through the Rene Rivera types and, and found useful catchers uh, who can, you know, at least help their pitching staffs if they're not going to hit. Uh, or you can, you know, go the other direction and find an Evan Gaddis if you just don't care about defense and you want to stick someone back behind the plate who has some power, which is what they tried to do with Peter O'Brien. Uh, I think, you know, to say, uh, you know, we have this glaring hole, it means that, like, you know, it's not that hard to find an upgrade. And I think if the Diamondbacks were actually serious about not putting an embarrassing product on the field this year, they'll find someone better than Tuffy Ghost Witch because it just isn't that hard. Okay. All right. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, can you remember in, in recent years, and p- perhaps the, uh, you know, the positional power rankings uh, to come will reveal instances in which this is also the case, but a team entering a season with uh, such a glaring weakness, 
at, at, a, at a particular position. And not just a learning weakness, but neither of those guys are really even – like, you know, maybe you could say Derek Jeter entering last year because yeah. he was clearly not that great. But he, there was also, like, very clearly a reason that, that the team had him rostered there. And also, um, you know, he had been quite good before. But uh, yeah. can you think of any other instances? I mean, you know, I almost would say like the Rangers left field situation this year. Like if you look at the guys that are playing for, for playing time in Texas in left field, there's like Ryan Rua and Jake Smolinski and, uh, you know, just, uh, Carlos Paguero. It is a, a poo-poo platter of crap. I mean, this is like really just not good players. I think the, maybe the caveat there, which is a little interesting because uh, I think they came out and said that Joey Gallo is going to remain at third base and they're not going to give him any time in the outfield is with Adrian Beltre locked in at third base for the next two years and Joey Gallo maybe not that far from the big leagues, it would make sense to be like, we're not going to get a long-term left fielder because Joey Gallo might be our left fielder by the summer. Uh, but if that was the plan, I would think that maybe you'd have Joey Gallo playing the outfield right now uh, and being like, oh, we don't have any room to play him at third base because Adrian Beltre is still really good uh, and Ryan Rua is terrible. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be what Texas is doing. So maybe I'll throw the Rangers left field situation into the mix. is not that different from the Diamondbacks catching situation. I will submit that uh, I am enthusiastic and optimistic about Jared Hoying. Jared okay. Hoying. Sometimes people will say, Carson, what is a player you like that I've never heard of before? <laughs> and, uh, and Jared Hoying is one of them. He, uh, is this he actually... something you hear at like, coffee shops a lot? Like you order a grande frappuccino and they're uh-huh. like, hey, what, what do you think about Jared Hoying? You're really, you're really misrepresenting my life, Dave Cameron. You don't, you don't order a grande frappuccino? I don't order grande, grande frappuccino, Dave Cameron. I have some respect, not a lot. <laughs> what, is, what is your hipster drink of choice? A coffee? Just a drip coffee. Give me a drip yeah. coffee. Okay. I usually would like to put a little cream in it, which actually in the coffee world, we were at a place in Paris that was like, that specialized in drip coffee and they make it right in front of you there and it's, you know, it's all oh, the beans have been, you know, they've been blessed or something. You know, there's a lot <laughs> going on, um, very artisanal and I asked for cream in it and the guy just gave me a look like, why would you, why would you come here if you were going right. to also ask for cream in it? It's uh, yeah. frowned upon, but I think here's the thing. People drink uh, wine, right? People like wine. People, and there's a lot of uh, uh, culture around wine of you know connoisseurship. And but no one adds anything to wine to make it better, because usually you're like, this wine is so good. Here's the thing: coffee tastes better with cream in it, almost uniformly. And uh, you don't drink any any of those things. Yeah. But there's probably an example from your own life. It's just, you know, it's this tastes good. Yeah. No, cream is delicious. Cream has I, fat I, in I, it. I, yeah. Right, yeah, it was, it was very good. I will say, uh, not really related to anything we've talked about so far, you used the word artisanal when yeah. discussing that coffee. Uh, maybe the best joke I've seen on Twitter in a long time. Last week, I think, some, I don't remember who it was, but somebody uh, made a reference uh, that they didn't want to call their story an anecdote. They called it small batch artisanal data, which uh-huh. I thought was, uh, as far as, Nerdy jokes go. One of the, one of the better ones that I laughed for at least five minutes. That's, uh, now, that's a strong we one. Don't have, yeah, we don't have, we don't have stories. This small batch artisanal data. Who uh, do you know who did it? That's a that's a strong uh, no, mind. You can probably you can probably Google uh, or search Twitter for some. Uh, it, I would imagine those four words probably aren't put together that often. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, oh, small batch artisanal food, chocolate. But we're going data here. Yeah. Um, it was someone named Sarah? Okay. Good for you, Sarah. That was funny. They're not anecdotes. That's small batch artisanal data. Yes, yeah. Sarah. Good job, Sarah. Sarah yeah. from Auckland, Auckland, uh, New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have guessed that it was a Kiwi. 
Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, all right, we've done it, Dave Cameron. You've done it in particular. What a what a job you've done. Thank you. Um, uh, but so uh, we didn't uh, we didn't really miss anything that was too notable, did we? Uh, you know, Adam Eaton got some money, but who cares? Oh yeah. Well, Besides Adam Eaton, good Adam, job, yeah. Uh, he probably cares. Yeah, you could jump Adam Eaton. Uh, the Dodgers are signing a Cuban. Yeah. Well, also the Dodgers pitching staff might be dying. Uh, Hinjin Ryu is heading for uh, potential arm problems, and they don't have a lot of pitching depth. So uh, expect the Dodgers to, to start scouring the market for pitching. Okay. Uh, well, I'll t- uh, I will let the Dodgers know if I see anyone today at the spring training Mexican League game if I'm attending. Yeah. I would imagine your finder's fee would be uh, substantial, given the Dodgers' uh, pocketbooks. Yes, right. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's on a sliding scale Yeah. relative to the team's ability to pay. Yeah. Um, so you actually, if you want to help the A's, you have to pay them. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stoy. This has been Fangraphs Audio.